Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So today we are going to kick off a very long message series on the book of Genesis. And we're going to read through this book. It's probably going to take us at least through September. So most of the summer. Now around here, we have a habit as a church of taking the summers to study the Old Testament. We've gone through the book of Daniel. We've gone through Kings. This summer, we're going to go through Genesis and it's going to take us a little longer than normal. But at the end of last year, when I was praying and preparing for uh, this year's messages on how we were going to study the word and what the Lord wanted us to study. One of the things that I felt the Holy Spirit continually say to me is that he wanted our church to go back and study the beginnings of things. Go back and study the firsts of things. So the first gospel that was written was Mark, even though that's not the first one in your Bible, that was the first one written. So we read through Mark at the beginning of the year. Now that we're in the summer, we're going to kick off this time by studying the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. Genesis was, uh, according to most scholars, accredited probably around the year 1400 BC, 1250 BC to uh, Moses, that he was the one that wrote it. And the reason why I feel like it's important for us as a church to go back and study the beginnings, it's apparent why God had us do that now, is because it, it, it's it's very obvious through all of the things that have taken place through the pandemic and, and all of the riots and all of the racial tension and the aggression that's been coming up, that if there was something that the church needed at this time right now, it was a foundation examination. We need somebody, the Holy Spirit, to come and examine our foundation because it has become apparent that many of the things that we say that we believe, we don't know why we believe them. We don't know where these concepts that we champion are grounded in. We don't know where they start. We don't know um, what the foundation of those things are. And so this year, the Lord has walked us through the beginnings of things. And one of the reasons why I feel it's important for us to read Genesis is because it is the foundation for all theology that we understand in the Word of God from that book forward. There are things that are established in that book that are then referenced in many other books as the foundation for why we believe what we believe. Today, we're gonna to walk through the creation story and we're, it's, it's probably a story that you've heard many times. We kind of understand how the Lord created the world, but what the, the responsibility of a Christian is not to just know a thing, but know why a thing affects us. What do we do with the thing now that we know it? And the idea that we know how everything got here is not the end of the story. We should take how everything got here and let it build a solid theology and an understanding in our heart of how we should live. That's one of the reasons why we're, we're reading through Genesis. Because there are foundational things in this book found um, uh, all throughout the, the many chapters that we're gonna study that are going to inform even the way that we see Christ and the way that we live today. Um, so uh, to get started, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and crack it open to Genesis chapter one. As you're doing that, we'll put it up on screen and so you can follow along. We're the kind of church who really, really loves the Bible. I'm the kind of guy who really, I mean, I'm in love with the scriptures. I'm not a big fan of just like reading one verse and then talking for 30 minutes on it. We're going to read a lot of Bible because I really love it and I want you to love it too. So as much as we're reading a lot of Bible today, I want you to understand that this is, it's, it's just a way to stir your appetite to go and do this at home. As you're turning to Genesis, I want to, rem uh, well, remind you, I want to let you know um, that the thing that you should be keeping at the forefront of your mind for this book is that the book of Genesis is primarily a book of grace, which seems very contradictory. Because what we do know about Genesis, it was a pretty wild time, and it's wild west. There's not a whole lot of law. It's, I mean, it is really bizarre. Some of the things that we're gonna read in this book. Some of them you might feel are not even appropriate for kids to read. That's the kind of stuff that's in here. But I want you to rem remind yourself that while this stuff is strange and full of sin, it is a book of grace. Romans 5.20 reminds us that wherever sin increased in this book and at this time, grace abounded all the more. And what we mean, what Paul meant by that was that um, if you're going to sum up Genesis in this concept of grace, it's wrapped around the story that God saw fit to create mankind and share friendship with him and give mankind one command, okay? 
don't disobey me by eating the fruit of that tree. One simple command. That was the only command. That was the only thing they had to follow. And they disobeyed him. And what they did through that disobedience was let loose a cancer of sin that still affects all of us in this room today. It affects your heart. It affects your selfishness. It affects the way that you see the world. But God did not say that was the end of the story and decide that the best thing for us is to just, just start over, wipe everything clean, and get rid of the human race and start over. His desire was to um, offer promises of redemption, stay faithful to those promises, even to the point where the heirs of those promises became the very ones who uh, caused the entire promise to come into question. So God would tell somebody like, uh, like an Abraham, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you. And Abraham's like, cool. Then, then I should probably have a part in this, right? I should probably do some things. And God's like, no, 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 just, mm, just, just be you. I'm gonna bless you. And Abraham says, cool, so, so I need to go do some stuff. And at some point, he became the most hostile aspect of the relationship. Like God wants to bless him, and Abraham is the one who's causing God to not be able to bless him the way he wants him to. That's how twisted and bizarre sin causes this thing. God says, I want to pour my blessing out on you. And, and humans look at him and say, okay, well, cool. So, so, so I'll define how that looks. So when you say blessing, you mean this and this and this, right? God's like, no. But he never, he never gets to the point where he's, he's going to just write off humanity because he stays true to his own word. He promises that he's going to redeem mankind and he always stays faithful to that promise, which is good news for you. Because on your best day, God can make enough, he can make a strong enough case to say that you're not worth it anymore. On your best day. But what God saw fit to do was not stay faithful to your faithfulness and say, I will redeem you if you are worth being redeemed. He said, I will redeem you and love you because I said that I will redeem you and I will love you. Do you see the difference? This is the foundation of a healthy marriage. You don't love your spouse because of what they can do for you. You love your spouse because you made a decision to love your spouse. You follow? This is the foundations of Genesis. So the, the, this concept in this story reminds us that really the only change that is worth anything is the stuff that comes from the outside of us. It's this God who created everything, and while we broke everything, and while we are convinced that today um, the greatest fix to the world that we see is something that we could do, and we as humans have this bad habit of thinking, okay, well we broke this stuff, so we're responsible for fixing this stuff. This book is gonna remind us that the, the fix for the world that you see today is not more legislation, it's not more inventions, it's not more um, uh, social media campaigns. The fix for what we see is a heart issue, it is a sin manifestation issue, and the only real fix is to allow God from the outside to come in and fix what's in here and let that come out. Do you follow? The entire book, this Old Testament, proves to us that the law, outside influences, can do nothing more than diagnose how broken we actually are and how much we actually need a savior. We need outside intervention. We are not gonna fix the mess we're in with clever perspectives and more dialogue. Now, I'm not telling you that those things are not important in a broken world who wants nothing to do with Jesus, but I'm telling you as the people of God, we have surrendered our sense our identity, our belief system that the world can be fixed by more solutions from the world. The only thing that sin brings is more sin. You're not going to put a room full of broken people together and, and get solutions that will span eternity and fix the world. The only hope we have is outside impact, outside salvation from the King of glory, and his name is Jesus. Though, so to see where we got to, why this world is so broken, we're going to read through the creation story. I'm going to start in Genesis 1. I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit. We'll kick off in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Um, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. 
and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So let me pause right there for a second. Because what Moses is telling us, the writer of Genesis, is that in the beginning, the only thing that existed was God. There was no matter, there was no space, there was no time, there was no concept of, um, of objects or, or mass that God pulled from in order to create everything that we see. In the beginning, according to the word of God, and when, when everything started, the only thing that has always existed is God. And from his, his own self, he spoke into existence everything that we see. Everything around us came from nothing. Now, that is important, but I'll get to that in just a second, because there's a long debate in our faith that I, should, uh, I want to reference for just a second about um, how the creation works. What, it, what was the timeline for this? Um, and what I mean by that is um, there are lots of different perspectives on how the creation began. One popular one is the idea that between verses one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, pause. Verse two, the earth was formed without void. There's a prominent belief that between verses one and two was in a, a period of time of millions and millions and millions of years. That God started creation, there was some sense of, of, of cosmic war, maybe that was the point where Satan got kicked out of heaven, um, and it, he kind of just let loose in the destruction of the earth, and that was at the point in verse 2 where it becomes form and void and darkness was over the face of the earth. That is a, a leading prominent theory by a lot of theologians. There's another one that when we go into the seven days of creation, um, they are not uh, necessarily 24-hour days, but they are actually just measures of time in the sense that when God says um, a day is, is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, when Moses is describing the days of creation, one through seven, he's not necessarily saying a 24-hour period. What he's saying is during a period of time, which we refer to as a day, is these things that took place. That is a prominent one. And there's another one that the uh, interpretation of Genesis 1 is just, um, it's as literal as you could possibly get. When he says that uh, a day took place and there was morning and there was evening, that was a literal 24-hour period of time. Now, I could make a compelling argument for any of those perspectives. And throughout the ages, many, many smart theologians, much smarter than me, have made even more compelling arguments. So the point that I want to drive home today is not how God did it. I want to drive home the point that God did it. Now, just to satisfy your curiosity, I am a very traditional, um, I have a very traditional view when it comes to uh, scripture and um, studying the word. I personally believe that it was a 24-hour period, that when Moses says it was you know, morning and evening, cool, that was seven days. And I have no problem reconciling that with uh, the fossil record or, uh, you know, what we see within the Grand Canyon or the levels of strata, I, personally, but I'm super weird. I'm also of the opinion that dinosaurs were walking around at the same time of people. I don't personally see that the world was billions and billions and trillions of years old. But I also don't have an issue and will draw lines in the sand with people who do believe that. If that's your perspective and you want to reconcile that with the scripture, I'm not going to argue with you. Because the point that we all have to walk away with is not how he did it, it's the fact that he did do it. And the reason why that's the takeaway for this is because Genesis 1 is communicating to us that if, <clears throat> if our takeaway is that God created everything, then everything belongs to him. That's why this is important. Not how long it took, who is the author of it? Now let's walk through this for just a second. If God created everything, if everything belongs to him, then therefore this world we're living in is his house. And just like I don't come to your house and make rules for your kids, and you don't come to my house and make rules for my kids, when you come over, you follow the rules that have already been established. We, as the creation, do not get to tell the creator how to see things how to do things, how we should be living, which is the greatest desire of mankind today, to walk around thinking, you know, with all these technological advancements and ways of seeing things, I think I've got a pretty clever way that we should be doing life. 
Well, I know that it's contrary to what it says here, but based off of the evidence that's presented around us, I think that this is a clever and uh, more appropriate way to view things like sin or personal responsibility or accountability or faithfulness. Do you see the issue? When you read Genesis and you miss the point that God was the one who created it all, you miss the point that all of us are stewards and not owners. None of us own anything. By the grace of God, you have been called by him to steward his resources. That is how the Bible tells you to think about your role in the world. As a steward, not an owner, and your responsibility is to follow the rules of his house and how he sets things and not spend all of your time trying to argue why his perspective is wrong. He's God and you are not. Now, in the first two verses, we've already been smacked between the eyes with most of what we struggle with on a daily basis. Because most of us in here, if you boil down your daily issues, it comes down to what you want. Me over God. And in the first two verses, we have been told who has the actual ultimate authority. And so what is required is for your heart to bow, not his will to change. Do you follow? Let's go to verse three. So let's go down these days, because um, I think often we've read through these days and we kind of breeze through it quickly, but as we read through these, what you're gonna see, hopefully, um, is the beauty and the care and the glory of God that reflects in the creation. So in verse three it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, And the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So on day one, God creates light and dark, watch this, independently of the sun. There's no sun at this point. But not only is there no sun, there's nothing in the universe that is creating light. There's no candles, there's no matches, there's nothing giving off light, which is interesting because our perspective, our understanding of light is completely based in the fact that light is a byproduct of something creating that light. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Light is not a byproduct. Light is the thing that God started with. And so when we read in the New Testament when John says things like, if you want to be a Christian and follow Jesus, you have to walk into the light. Being a Christian is not a byproduct of doing good things. You don't walk in the light by doing good things and not doing bad things. Walking in the light, biblically, is this concept that you are stepping into something that has already existed from the foundation of time. You are not creating it. You are not reflecting it. You are not, um, um, you, you are not uh, the origin of this light. You are not bringing light into a dark place by the the sheer fact that you are doing good things and being a nice person. You are, there is an offer from eternity, from God himself that says, hey, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, step into this thing that has already been going on long before you ever existed, which is very important for us because it takes the weight off of you of feeling like you've got to go through this cycle of guilt to feel like, man, I've let God down. I wasn't the witness I should have been in this situation. I could have done more. When you boil all of those issues of guilt down to their base, what do you find? It's just you. It's a whole lot of you complaining about you. Where is God in that equation? He's not needed. Which is the reason why the enemy loves throwing that guilt on you and making you feel like you're not good enough because you haven't done enough. But that's contrary to what the Bible tells us we're supposed to be thinking about things like light and dark. Walking in the light, this concept of light is not something that is a byproduct and just shows up. It is something that has always existed and God has established for the foundation of the world. This is light and this is the thing I want you to walk in. Now let's go down to verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
So God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So in, on the second day, God creates the water and the sky. Now the way that is arranged, it's more poetic than it is historical. And so when he talks about um, the expanse, that Hebrew word for expanse, um, you, can, you can picture in your mind almost like just a complete flat plane. God looks out over the universe and he speaks into existence this concept of water and it just, it just, it, it, it appears in, in just like a road or just a flat plain, just out in the middle of nowhere. And from that, God speaks how the water is supposed to obey. Not that it just fills the space it's supposed to, to, to fill, it obeys what God says. And God says, okay, I'm gonna create an expanse, I'm gonna create this thing, earth, and I'm gonna separate the waters into the waters above and the waters beneath. Now that word, Heaven is not what we would think heaven like where God lives. Heaven has three interpretations in Hebrew scripture. Heaven, there is um, the heavens, like the sky that you see. So when you walk outside right now and you look up, what are you going to see in the heavens? The clouds. Okay, and when you look beyond the clouds at night, on a clear night, you can see the stars. That is, that is also considered the heavens. It's the second heavens. And then there's a third heavens, and that's the place where we would consider from Scripture where God lives. So in the New Testament, when Paul says, I know a man who was caught up in the third heavens, it's not, he's not describing this concept that like, oh, I went to like the deepest place of heaven that you've ever imagined. They're like, I went to third level heaven. No, he's describing the fact that he was pulled up in the spirit into the throne room of God. Do you follow? So when Moses is describing this concept of heaven, what he's saying is God established and created the earth with his voice, this concept that the water fills out this globe that we call earth, and he separated the waters from above and the waters from below. So what he's essentially establishing here is a water canopy that surrounds the entire earth. There is no need for rain because what you have is essentially a greenhouse effect. You've got ocean covering the entire earth, and around that, that hemisphere around it, is an entire covering of ocean. That will be very important when we study the flood later. Now, let's go down to day three. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place, and then let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. So on the, uh, and, and excuse me, and God said from that point after the earth started forming, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit which is in their season, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation and plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. So pine trees are not creating oak trees and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its own kind, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So when God creates this stuff, when, when, when Moses says uh, uh, on the second day that he's separating the waters, that word separate is a word that kind of m- means like, uh, it's the same as like a, children's, uh, a child sitting on the, um, uh, the shore at the beach and he's moving sand around to build the sandcastle. That's that word separate. So God, with his voice moved the entire water, all the ocean that you see, he moved it with his voice, just like a child would move it around on the earth. And as he did that, he called forth land, land appeared, he spoke into it, and we see trees, and we see bushes, and we see fruit trees, and everything starts to sprout up, and everything produces after its own kind. And the beauty about that is that if you can walk, you walk outside right now and you just look in, uh, across the street, look into any woods, everything you see that's green and has bark and that is a tree or a plant is a byproduct of what God established on this day. Independent of you ever touching it ever again. If mankind just ceased touching the earth, guess what would happen? The trees and the grass and the vines would overtake all of the structures we've built with human hands. And the reason why that is is because all of creation is still 
obeying God's word to go forth and multiply. Independent of what any farmer ever does, if we never planted another crop, this entire earth would continue to obey the word of God in producing and reproducing. Now let's go to day four. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night. And then he created the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, and there was the fourth day. So at this point, God's creating this, uh, he's creating in the space, the stars, the planets, the moon, the sun. And these creations, they preach a story of beauty of God's creation. And what they do is they govern the seasons and the days and the calendars. This is super important. Because at this point, there's no mankind on earth. Man hasn't been created yet. But God saw fit to create gigantic celestial objects in the sky whose sole purpose is to govern the seasons and the times of the earth before you and I ever got here. Which means that the concept of times and seasons is something independent and existed before you ever showed up. And that means that in certain places in the world, it doesn't matter how hard you try and plant a tree, if it's winter, it will not grow. It doesn't matter how hard you want it to, if it's not the right season, it will not happen. Jesus takes this illustration in the New Testament and he teaches us about seasons. And one of the things that we often forget as Americans and as as humans, is this idea that the world does not revolve around us. And as bad as you want whatever season you're in right now to be over, if God doesn't want you bearing fruit in this, if he wants you teaching, if he wants to teach you something right now, and you're going through a season that is more like winter than summer, your willing this or your bad attitude is not going to get out of, get you out of the season faster. Think for a moment about all the times you went through in your life where you were unhappy about whatever was going, around, going on around you. This concept of seasons, this concept of days and the things being orchestrated by God to set up periods of time in order for things to take place and be fruitful before we ever got here needs to be a constant reminder to us about the way we're supposed to govern our lives. We don't get to, just because we are free Americans, decide when certain things happen. There are some things in your life, spiritually speaking, that you are not ready to learn or walk in yet, which means that you have to go through some other seasons before you will be able to uh, appreciate and understand and fully walk in the things that he has for you later. And I'm sorry, there's just no other way around it. Think about what you're going through right now. Had you been ready to go through that when you were 19? Think about what you're going through when you're just right now. Do you think that you could have mentally or spiritually prepared for what you're going through right now when you were 22? No, because there were things you had to learn at that period that now prepare you for what you're going through right now. And that means that if there are things that you, that you were prepared for later that you're going through right now, that right now, even as uncomfortable as it is to go through what you're going through right now, you are currently right now being prepared for some season coming down the road. So don't end it before it's time. Stop trying to get out of the car. Stop trying to pull the ejection cord. Stop being bitter and upset about the season he has you in right now. Because just by understanding the creation story, he is preparing you to be fruitful in a later season. You follow? Let's pick up in verse 20. God said... Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. 
Fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So God created everything that we see in the ocean that swims and everything in the sky that that flies. And why did he do it? He did it to fill the expanse of the oceans and fill the expanse of the sky with creatures. He looked at this great empty space called the sky and he said, I'm going to fill that with creation. And he looked down to the depths of the ocean, this empty, huge pool of water, and he said, I'm going to fill this with creatures. And he looked at it and he said, this is good. Why was it good? Because it is good for life to fill the space of creation. God takes great joy and pleasure in knowing that life and abundance and fruitfulness is what fills his creation. He despises that death and destruction and sorrow and sadness fills his destruction currently. And so he sent his son to die to redeem mankind so that ultimately, one day, we would be redeemed and what would fill his creation once more is life and abundance and fruitfulness. Now this is all good, but then on the sixth day, something wild happens. God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creeping things, beasts, the earth across according to their own kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Everything reproduces after its own kind. But then God said, in the middle of it all, let us make man. Let us. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. So you can study the the Bible front to cover or front to back and you won't find the word trinity. But if you search through the scriptures, and this is a great example of it, you will find the evidence that our God, the God we serve, is one God in three persons. And from the foundations of the earth, there has always existed the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a misconception to believe believe that Jesus showed up and appeared the moment he was born. That was the moment he took on human flesh in order to give himself as a sacrifice for all mankind to redeem all humanity. But Jesus has always existed. The Holy Spirit has always existed. At creation, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. Jesus, according to the the book of John, is, is the one who's speaking this stuff into existence. The Father is the one who's looking over creation and saying, this is good. The Trinity has always existed. Our God has always existed in three, uh, three in one, uh, one in three persons. And at the foundation of creation, we see this evident and we see God say, we're going to create man in our image, in our likeness. And man will have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So he gives us a very quick synopsis of what he created. He created male and female. We're gonna dive into that in chapter two, but God created everything to be a part of a much greater whole. We see this in creation, Genesis one. We also see this in the New Testament, Corinthians, where Paul talks about how we're supposed to see our responsibility and our place within the local church. Everybody was created in such a way that you don't have all the gifts. You need other people in order to complete the family of God. You are not everything God needs all wrapped up in one person. You are not that special. He has designed you in a way where you have inadequacies and lack in your marriage, in your job, within the church, to remind you daily that you are one part of a greater whole and you cannot accomplish anything on your own. You need other people in your community. And God created mankind in his own image, which means that everyone that is a human being shares equal value because we are all image bearers of God. 
We were created in God's image, therefore we are unique in creation in the sense that we all share a common thread of God's character on the inside of us. We are image bearers of God, we reflect God, and so we don't, as the creation, get to stand back and say, you're not as valuable as me, or you have less worth than me. That is anti-God, that is anti-Bible, that is anti-Gospel. The idea from the very first chapter of our book that we say we believe tells us that we're supposed to think about all mankind starting from an equal place because we all share the dignity of being created in God's image. Now go to chapter two and look at verse one. So thus the heavens and the earth were finished and the hosts of all of them. So everything's done being created, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from his work that he had done in creation. Now, pause just for there for a second, because one of the things that you see in this is that for the first six days, there was a morning and there was an evening. There was a start and there was an end to the day, but not with the seventh day of rest. There is no ending to the day of rest. God's intent from the day of creation was to call this day holy because it's a day that doesn't end. The goal of Eden, the goal of creating mankind was to create mankind as ones who oversee and steward God's creation and fellowship with him for all eternity. There was no concept of death at this point. There was no concept of sin. There was only a concept of friendship with God that never ended. It was eternal rest. It was a state of being where you didn't need to go to sleep or rest because rest was always existing. Now, this goal of eternal rest was broken in the next chapter when we disobey, which is the reason why the writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter four, verses nine through 11, that God's ultimate goal is restoring Eden so that we can again get back into this eternal rest. This state right here, chapter two, verses one through three, is what Christ promises we will get back to. Not just a place where we won't have sin or sickness anymore, but we will come to a place as the people of God where we will rest for all time. Now Genesis zooms into the creation that we saw in 27. This is not some weird like in 27 he created, did he create mankind and they were both man and woman? No, that's not what he's saying. He said he created mankind, he created men and women. And then in chapter two, Moses zooms in on this very unique aspect of creation because it is so um, unique. Verse five, he says, when no bush of the field was yet on the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no one to work the ground. Okay, well that seems contradictory because in the last chapter, we saw that God had uh, created like plants um, a couple of days before he created mankind. So how is the writer of Genesis now telling us that now mankind was created before there were bush. The Hebrew word for bush of the field and the trees that were created back in like day three or so, those are two different words. So what he's saying is um, during the days of creation, God created all of the plants that you see on the earth. But when we get down to the things that man is going to be planting, like, like corn and things that you harvest, the smaller bushes, those things are, respo- are, are, are a byproduct of God um, giving man the responsibility of farming that stuff and pulling his food out of the land. So, and a mist was going up, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. And this is interesting because what he's telling us is there's no concept of rain like we hear outside right now. The whole earth was a greenhouse. It was a perfect 72 degrees year round, no matter where you went. Now that alone is worth my allegiance to Christ (laughs) to get back to that. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the eye and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now jump down to verse 15. So the Lord God took that man that he just created and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And Lord God commanded the man saying, surely you must not eat, you, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not 
eat. For in the day that you do eat, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it's, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord f- had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought him to the man to see what he would call him. And, and whatever the man called the living creature was his name. But what you see is that while everything on earth had a mate, Adam didn't. So the Lord, in verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs, closed up the place where that flesh was, and the rib that the Lord had taken, and made, he fashioned it, brought it to the man. He, he fashioned to a woman, he brought it to the man, and the man said, this it at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was made out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So God breathed life into man and created woman. And the beauty about that is originally women, woman, came from man. Woman came out of man, but from that point forward, no man on earth came into existence without woman. You see the beauty of the way that God orchestrated that? There's, no, there's not this authority structure that you see later after the fall. There's this, this interdependence where woman can't exist unless man gives of himself and man can no longer exist unless woman gives of herself. Do you see the beauty in that? That's what, when, Christ, when, when Paul says in the New Testament and in Corinthians that that's how we're supposed to understand marriage. Marriage is a mystery. It preaches the gospel because what it tells us is that it's not two independent, selfish people trying to learn how to coexist and live peacefully. It is, it is, the, it is a lifelong process of two independent, broken people coming together and learning how to become one like it was intended originally in Eden. These aspects of mankind, they're, 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 they're a biblical cornerstone for us understanding lots of things within the culture. Because the culture wants to tell you things like um, it, the, the concept of gender and sex, that's something that we can mold and shift. The foundation for, when it comes down to God's creation, he created man and woman, and he created them dependent on one another in order for the purpose of unity And as ones who are the creation and not the creator, we like to elevate ourselves to the place of God and say, well, maybe we can redefine that too. Maybe we can redefine the whole concept of what marriage looks like. That's not in our wheelhouse. We don't have the authority to do this because this is not our house. It's his and he sets the rules. And if you want to follow him, you follow his standard of what he says is beautiful and normal and not our own, and not our cultures. Do you follow? So man and woman were given a command, don't eat of this tree. Now, we don't know how long they obeyed the command. It may have been many, many years. It may have been millions of years that they, did, that they didn't obey the command. But as long as they did not obey the command, excuse me, as long as they obeyed the command, they experienced no shame. And that's what we're told in verse 25. As long as they obeyed, there was no shame. But go to three, verse one, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord had God had made. Now the serpent is Satan, and his purpose is to deceive God's greatest creation. And he said to the woman, did God, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, look, we can eat of all the fruit trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she knew the rules. And the serpent said to him, ah, you're not gonna die. God gave you that command because he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are gonna be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the, God, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, for the first time in their entire creation, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. 
among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, did, was this news to God? Did he, did he, is this the first time he's hearing of this? No, he's God. He knows exactly what he's happening. And a lot of time in your prayer time, when you're praying, God will answer you with questions. And the reason why is because he doesn't need answers. He needs you to expose and say what's really truly on your heart. He wanted Adam to confess what he felt because of his choices. And the man said, well, um, uh, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What the serpent did, what the enemy did, what Satan did was the greatest temptation of all time. It's still going on today. And what he tells us is that if you obey God, you're going to miss out. Yes, God's good, and yes, he tells you what to do, but if you obey, you're gonna miss out. You're gonna have more experiences and more maturity if you just ignore God. You'll have more joy in your life if you just set your own rules. And so the enemy tempts us with this fear of missing out and he leaves out the consequences. But the truth is that the consequences for disobedience are always the same. And you guys are probably familiar with this because you felt the consequences of disobedience. Disobedience to God's word brings shame. Brings you to a place where you can't even confess to the people who love you most what you have done. It creates inside of you a desire to want to hide your sin. To not tell people what you did. To not be honest with yourself and with God. It creates a desire to hide from relationships and community and fellowship. So that when you hear the voice of the Lord coming for you in relationship, you hide. It creates a desire to blame other people and make excuses for why you are the way that you are. It creates a desire inside of you to say that the rest of the world is the problem. The problem is out there. It's not me. I'm not like that, the issue's out there. But most of all, it creates inside of you an appetite for more disobedience. Now in verses 14 through 19, God speaks a curse over mankind and the serpent. And out of this curse, this is what is experienced on the earth and we are still suffering from today. Rebellion caused all mankind to become slaves to sin. That's first. Rebellion meant that the idea of being fruitful and bringing forth children was now a painful thing, not a joyful thing. So all you ladies out there, they're pregnant, you're praying, oh, I just, I just want a painless childbirth. Good luck. That's not a thing you can pray for. That's a curse of sin. It brought about this idea that marriage should be shouldered with an authority structure. Before this, see, God tells woman, look, your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Before that, there's no concept of ruling. There's no concept of authority structure within the home. There's just two people obeying God, enjoying friendship with him. But because of sin, it brought in a curse where there will be a desire for a woman to want and desire her husband. But all that they're going to have inside that home because of sin is an authority structure that is broken. Christ redeems that, and as Christians, we have a better way of seeing marriage, but that's a curse of sin. It also means that work and eating become painful, that all people from now on will die, and we lost our home that God created for us in Eden, and we were cursed to wander and wonder for the rest of our lives. In three chapters, we go from the pinnacle of God's order and beauty and wisdom to homelessness and pain and death. And that is what we see in our world today. When you watch the news, you see sin in the streets because sin hasn't changed. Sin still rules because we like being lied to over and over again. Sin still rules because we believe half-truths and we're convinced that we are the fix to our own problems and sin continues to rule because the heart cry of all humanity is me above God. How did we get here? When you showed up this morning, you probably spent the entire week watching the news, being confused. How did we get here? This 
is how we got here. As a country of America, we struggle with the concept of race and slavery, not because it's new to us, but because this has been going on since the foundation of the world, because we as humans are convinced that we know better than God, and so we are still wandering trying to find Eden. Now in the middle of the curse, God gives a promise that the descendants of woman, they will bruise the head of the enemy and the enemy will strike his heel. That's a prophecy about Christ that one day through the bloodline of humanity will come a man who will redeem all humanity. And that is the only hope that this world has. Not that we can fix the things we broke, but that we can submit and put in the grave our own selfish ways of thinking and our own desires of how things need to be fixed. And we are born again. All of you were born into this world a certain way. And Christ says, if you want a taste of the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Because once you were born into the curse of Adam, but if you were born again by faith through me, you'll be born into a kingdom of light. The offer for us today is not to continue spending our time trying to figure out how to fix the things around us, but spend our time trying to find how we can submit individually and in our homes and in our church to what the word of God tells us we're supposed to think about this world. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.